I came from a beautiful neighborhood. I had a beautiful life. I went to sleep because September 7th was the first day of my high school year. I was going to be a senior. At 22, I was set to start college. I woke up and my life was never the same again. Cops came out with guns drawn and I never saw freedom ever, ever since after that. It's like Roach Motel. Once you get in, you're not getting out. This is Wrongful Conviction with Jason Flom. The Kakadu Plum is an Australian native superfood containing 100 times more vitamin C than oranges. So why have you never heard of it? PR. No one's drinking a Kakadu smoothie? I'm JB Smooth, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a gagillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at slash hypergig with details. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. When you have health insurance, it's easy to forget about your out-of-pocket costs. That can be a lot of money. But are your bills accurate? It's estimated over 50% of medical bills contain errors. HealthLock can help. HealthLock technology securely connects with your insurance and flags any overbilling, wrong codes, and fraud. You can even have HealthLock work on your behalf to get money back from select past bills. To date, HealthLock has helped its members save over $130 million. To save, visit HealthLock.com today. Welcome back to Wrongful Conviction with Jason Flom. Today, I'm extremely pleased and honored to have someone I consider to be, uh, I guess for lack of a better word, innocence royalty, uh, Michael Morton. Michael, welcome to the show. Thank you, Jason. It's good to be here. So Michael is an extraordinary person in so many ways. His case is extraordinary. His uh, life uh, post-exoneration is extraordinary. I didn't know him before this all happened because that's a long, long time ago. But uh, what he's been able to accomplish uh, both inside prison and outside is um, the stuff of legend. But let's go back, Michael. Um, You served 24 years and seven months to the day in Texas penitentiary for a crime you didn't commit. The day that I walked in the penitentiary was on March 4th. The day that I walked out was October 4th. So you were in prison 24-7. Yeah, that's... (laughs) For 24 years and seven months. But first, I just want to give the audience a sense of, you know, what kind of a person you were before all this stuff happened. I like to say that uh, I was the statistical midpoint in the American demographic in that uh, I was incredibly average. I went to uh, SFA, Stephen F. Austin State University in Nacogdoches, since where I met my future wife. Right. And Christine. I, yes. I met Christine there. Um, it began, as um, some romances do, you see somebody across the room, you know, and uh, it catches your eye, or she does in my case. Uh, make a long story short. The whole deal, married, had a child, thinking about getting another child on the way here, uh, you know, mortgage, suburbia, cars, credit cards, all that stuff. Sounds pretty the, good. It's the average. And that's why I call myself the <clears throat> statistical midpoint in the American demographic, because there was nothing unusual about my life. We had moved into our second home. We'd sold our first, made a nice little piece of that. We were 
doing well. And moving up. That was the idea. And um, it's my 32nd birthday. And the next day, when I went to pick up my son from the sitters, which was part of my routine, the babysitter looked at me in a very odd way. And she, what are you doing here? And I, well, she said that my son wasn't there, that um, my wife hadn't brought him in, which was very unusual for our routine. Every family has a rhythm that they live in. And the fact that I had not received any phone call from my wife, she hadn't brought him to the sitters, was very bizarre. So I just snatched the sitter's phone off the wall and called home. And to my surprise, a man answered and identified himself as the sheriff. And he wouldn't tell me anything except I needed to come home right away. Oof. And, uh... Your heart is now going a million miles a minute. Yeah, um, I, I literally ran to my truck and it's about a five-minute drive home from there. And five minutes doesn't sound much time. I mean, it, even though you're breaking the speed limit and running stop signs to get home because the sheriff just answered you, you know, you're running a mental inventory. What in the world could have happened? And uh, you, know, you run through, well, okay, could have been a fire, could have been a burglary, the wife may have been attacked, could be rape, and oh my God, could be murder too. And I knew something had happened to my wife. And as I literally slid up to my, my house, there were police cars all around the house. A very large yellow crime scene ribbon had been wrapped all the way around the yard. And um, saw a couple cops in the front yard, uniformed cops. Uh, and there were neighbors, you know, people I knew were on the sidewalks across the street, little clusters. Um, and as I slid up to the curb, you know, they all took note of me. It, it was almost a peripheral awareness. You know, you're focused on, my, oh, my God, what's here happening at my house? But you also see the things going on around you or you sense them. And I ducked under the crime scene ribbon and I was heading to the front door when the police stopped me because they didn't know who I was. And the, the sheriff showed up very quickly when they, you know, stopped me out in the front yard and he identified himself and he asked me to identify myself. But the first words out of my uh, mouth were actually about my son. And the sheriff told me that he was fine. He was at a neighbor's house a few doors down. And when I asked about my wife, he informed me in an almost matter-of-fact fashion that she was dead. And because the house appeared to look intact, it hadn't been burned, I asked if it was murder, and he said it was, yes. So when did you start to get the sense that they felt that you were a suspect? Initially, I did not. Um... They were asking some very odd questions, and I was intellectualizing, um, okay, they have to ask these rather pointed, uncomfortable questions because they're trying to piece everything together, and, you know, they have to eliminate me as a suspect. I get that. You know, after all, I've watched TV. I know how this works. Um, TV and reality don't always mesh, but I I got that. Um, It wasn't until a few days later when I was uh, interviewed by the police again and again that I was quite frustrated with their line of questioning. And I was also frustrated with what I perceived to be their inability or uh, unwillingness to do this, to do this investigation properly and professionally. And in a moment of frustration, I volunteered for a polygraph test. I said, look, if I take a polygraph test, will you believe me? And they lit up like very, very happy children. And, um, very shortly after that is when one of my neighbors, an attorney, suggested that I retain counsel. That I He had a couple friends who were very good criminal defense attorneys, uh, Bill White and Bill Allison in Austin, Texas. And I impl- went to see them. And uh, it was shortly before that that everything went south. Uh, they were gunning for me that for whatever reason – they looked around the crime scene before any interviews, before any lab tests, before a single thing had happened. As far as in an investigative sense, they decided that I was the guy. I had done it. So ultimately, um, how long was it before you were arrested and charged? It's about six weeks. Um, <clears throat> pardon me. Six weeks after uh, my wife's death, um, I was home with my son, just the two of us. Uh, in fact, we were making 
as much as he could help. We're making dinner. I'm in the kitchen, and there's a knock at the door. And uh, I picked up my son because, you know, leave him in the kitchen with all the, you know, hot water boiling, all that kind of stuff that's hot. Went to answer the door, and to my utter shock, it was the sheriff and a number of deputies there to arrest me. And I was flabbergasted. I, I did not expect them to do this. And um, as bad as being arrested is, the worst part was having my son torn up from my arms because I tried to think about what was he going through. I you know, basically got him there on my hip and they're wanting to handcuff me. And the last time my son had seen the police had been a really bad day. It's the day his mother was killed. And Worst day imaginable, yeah, for a kid. And suddenly the police were back. And he, he I, I could feel him. He wrapped his legs around my waist, and he didn't want to let go. But they, you know, they peeled him loose. I was trying to comfort him, and he's calling for me. And that was the worst part. As bad as being arrested is, it's much worse um, seeing what he's doing to my son. Because any, any, any parent knows that before you have a child, you are the center of your own universe. And then after you have that child, your perspective changes. Now comes the trial. So... You're now in this um, bizarre dream nightmare world of the criminal justice system sort of working exactly the way it's not supposed to. And this, uh, these prosecutors are up there painting you as a murderer and uh, saying all sorts of... Being on trial for murder, um, it's not what you think. You know, our, most everybody has their perspective of the way these things go because of TV and movies and books. You read about it, you think you know about it. But it's a completely um, separate world. It's a different universe. It's a subculture you're not familiar with. Uh, they have their own language and they have customs and they have rituals that you're, you don't know anything about. And the only thing you can do is listen to your attorneys. I mean, they're supposed to know what's going on. They've done it before. They know the way the system works. And you're torn between taking their advice from these experts you've hired as opposed to the way you feel about what you should do. And when you're torn like that between those two worlds, between what you think and what you feel, it's always a battle of what's in control. I mean, is it your head or is it your heart? Give, a, give an example of that. Okay. Um, one of the purely fabricated issues in my trial was that the prosecutor came up with this idea that because there was a, a semen stain on our bed, you know, on the sheets, that in his mind that meant that I had masturbated with my wife's dead hand. Wow. Yeah, and I didn't know where that came from. And you want to jump up and scream and, you know, deny it, maybe call him names or just, you know, that kind of insult. You almost want to jump on somebody. And yet, you know that this is a sort of a binary adversarial kind of, okay, you'll get your turn. Sit down, you know, be cool. Don't make the jury think you're some kind of nut. And, we, you know, we'll clean this up. And so that's the kind of thing that you're torn between is, you know that you should take your attorney's advice because of the, the, the stuff that's at stake here, your very life. And yet you have this visceral response to some of these accusations that are just baloney. You know, wh- wh- where'd this come from? Um, let's talk for a second about the exculpatory evidence that was withheld. Yeah, one of the great things that the Innocence Project does <clears throat> is their DNA exonerations. But you never know what a DNA test is going to reveal until you run the DNA test. And so before the tests were actually done, they had a parallel legal attack on my case. And one of them was a Texas Open Records Act, which is very, very similar to the Freedom of Information Act at the federal level. And so we actually got access to the prosecutor and the sheriff's files from 86 and 87. And at this time, you know, we're in the 21st century. Looking back, and this is the appellate thing. And in those files, we found out that despite the request by my attorneys and a direct order from the judge, 
the prosecution and the sheriff's department suppressed several key pieces of evidence that would have pointed to my innocence and would have helped immensely at our trial. And this, this is, my attorneys were begging for this kind of stuff, but they had no mechanism to get to it because the prosecutor was between us and the evidence. And one of the things was a check that had been cashed after my wife's death, a instance of her credit card being uh, used supposedly down in San Antonio a few days after her death. And, and the biggie was this um, transcript of a phone call. My son, unbeknownst to me, had apparently witnessed my wife's murder. Um, remember now, he was three at the time. And everybody, I mean, even the police were concerned about my son. And in the time between uh, my wife's murder and my incarceration, I had taken him to several child psychologists. And um, some he got along with, some he didn't. But the gist of it all was that they all told me, look, he, he is obviously suffering from what you might call separation anxiety because his mother's gone. But we don't believe that he has witnessed anything horrible or, more importantly, nothing horribly been done to him. And so that was a bit of release, but relief rather. Um, however, unbeknownst to me, he had told my mother-in-law, his grandmother, that he, he mentioned a lot of things about my wife being murdered to her. And he mentioned um, some very physical, distinct things about the crime scene that the police had withheld from the media that only they knew, which is part of the procedure. Because if somebody wants to come up and confess, they have to kind of prove that they did it. Or they also want to be able to prove or uh, catch somebody who's being interrogated. So, you know, here, here's this transcript of my son's admissions about witnessing my wife's murder, which would have been huge because he talked about a man with a big mustache and red gloves and he, how he'd hit mommy. And thank goodness my mother-in-law had asked him where I was. You know, was daddy there? And my son very distinctly said no. And so that would have been a wild, wonderful thing to have at trial. Well, it would have led to your exoneration. So the jury is is sequestered. Um, the, 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 the closing arguments have been done. <clears throat> the jury goes out. How long were they out for? I think it was about 90 minutes, but that doesn't mean they deliberated for 90 minutes because they also had lunch. So it could have been 45 minutes. Yeah, it could have been 30, yeah, and depending on how fast you eat. So they didn't deliberate very long Not at all. Not very long at all. There wasn't... Um, how long was the trial? It was uh, 10 days, two weeks. Right, so they were ready to go home. Oh, yeah. And, and while actually they, they weren't sequestered, they are instructed, as in all criminal cases, that you cannot talk to anybody about this. Don't watch TV. Don't read newspapers. Don't go on the internet, you know, even though there wasn't an internet back then for most of us. And so it was a, a really quick thing. They were back in no time, and... You got to stand up when they read the verdict. And in my mind, anyway, I was expecting a not guilty verdict because everything that they had brought forward, for the most part, had been emotional pleas without any hard data, no, no irrefutable science. It was, we, we had countered everything they threw out there. It was purely circumstantial. Yes. That courtroom, um, there was standing room only. And here's the weird thing when you're in these really um, intense, emotional, weighty situations. You're focused on the judge and the jury. And for just a moment, you're not aware of the closest people to you being right behind you. You're not aware that there are a line of cops very nearby ready to seize you. You're not aware of the sounds. You're not aware of the temperature. You're very, very focused on the people that are going to decide your fate for the rest of your life right here and right now. And I had more than an expectation of being found not guilty. And when they said guilty, it knocked the wind out of me. And I, I, I didn't collapse on the ground, but my knees buckled and I sat down in my chair. And it was an involuntary act. If the chair had not been in there, I'd have fallen to the floor. And I did hear the wails of my mother. I think some people were surprised. Some people were glad. It was a real mixed bag. But once the verdict was in, then you become the murderous perv, the boogeyman, the, the, the guy there that everybody hates. 
Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S., That's over 15 million people by the end of this year, equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats, even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at lifelock.com slash iHeart. That's lifelock.com slash iHeart to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. So now you're found guilty and you're sent to Texas prison. Right? Is it as bad as it sounds? Prison, um, it's not what you think it is. It's a, it's a subculture. It's very insular. It's not like the outside world. And when you get there, I got some great advice while I was in county jail. There was an old guy in county jail before I went down to the penitentiary, and he told me, he said, you'll be okay. You know, you're a grown man, you're 32, you're not going down there at 19. But he said, in the beginning, keep your mouth shut and your eyes open. And I found that to be some of the best advice I ever received. Um, The penitentiary is a violent place. Lots of internal boredom and then absolute horror. And that's kind of what it's like. But after a a while inside, you become desensitized to the violence. I've heard you talk about the noise. Um, Do you remember? Inside, there's a constant din or roar. Um, Gates are slamming. PA systems blaring. A lot of people talking at the same time. Uh, In the mornings, the TVs come on in the day room, and it Late at night, they're turned off. And in, in between, they're on different channels, and they're on full blast, and you're in a concrete and steel room. And the sound's bouncing off, and people are slamming dominoes on metal tables and yelling at each other. And it's like Dante's Inferno. What keeps you going is what keeps you going. My first year down there, because of a similar schedule, I started seeing this one guy down at the gym whenever I would go to the gym. And just by convenience sake, proximity, we started talking and we, I found out that he'd already been there 20 years when I just drove up. 
And our personalities were close enough where we we formed something of a friendship, acquaintances. And one uh, one weekend, somebody on our cell block hanged himself. He died right there. And for a while, that was the talk of the cell block. You know, so-and-so killed himself. And my new friend Lonnie had been there a while. He'd seen this happen quite a few times. And I mentioned it to him, and he said, oh, yeah. The guy didn't have anything to look forward to. And he told me, he said, you have to have hope. It can be remodeling an old house, restoring an old marriage. Uh, It doesn't matter what it is. You have to have something to look forward to. And in a very offhanded way, he said, like you, it's your son. And that's kind of surprised me. I didn't realize that I was being that transparent. But he said, without hope, without something to look forward to, no matter what it is, you won't want to get out of bed in the morning. You won't want to live in that place for the rest of your life. You'll either hang yourself or cut your own throat or jump off the third tier. And I've seen guys do all three. Wow. Um, so your son would visit, and he was your hope. Yeah. Um, it, it's one of those wonderful, strange, uh, <laughs> thank God moments kind of thing where you have something precious and wonderful that you're projecting onto and you're hoping for. And I, I got to see him about every six months. And then that changed. Um, while that was a wonderful thing, at a certain point, my son reached you know early puberty, early teens, and he's getting tired of coming down there just to see his dad. And the people raising him aren't saying good things about me. And he wants to end the visits. And he does. And um, I made him come down there and tell me that. And um, you're scheduled for two-hour visits in Texas, depending on how far away you are. And um, when they came to see me the last time, got right to it, and I asked him if it was our last visit. And he told me it was. And I turned to my sister-in-law, the lady raising him, I told him, told her to take good care of my son, and I told my son that he always knew where to find me, and I walked out of the visiting room. That scheduled two-hour visit lasted about two minutes, and um, it's one of you hear that kind of news, you go through that kind of thing, and I'd been inside a while, and I'd already had something of that shell around me, that tough guy persona, but I still felt as if I'd been kicked in the face. I was numb. I was kind of walking through a haze. I knew the real pain would come later, just like being kicked in the face. But um, it's the last time I saw him while I was inside. And I still had another, oh, by then, another 12 or 14 years to go. So now you, your hope is gone. But you didn't take the, let's call it the easy way out. You saw guys hanging themselves, jumping off tears, uh, slitting their own throats. What did, what, what happened? Well, I did something that was very uncharacteristic for me at the time. Um, I was completely emotionally, utterly just empty, gutted, wounded, and I didn't know what to do or where to go, which way to turn. And the uncharacteristic thing that I did is I, I cried out to God, you know, Help, show me something. I got nothing here. Right, but you weren't a religious guy at the time. Nah, nah, nah. And um, I, I got nothing. You know, I, I didn't hear this voice from above, you know, Michael, it's going to rain, build a boat. It was absolutely nothing. And then you know what? In all candor, that not getting a response was sort of what I expected because things had been going so badly for so long. Right. Why would this I be any Yeah. Why, yeah. why is it going to change in a, in a heartbeat like this? You know, just because I'm suffering. Boo-hoo. And then about a week or so later, completely normal day, nothing special, work, gym, eat, sleep. Um, it's late at night. It's my usual bedtime. <sighs> my cell partner's on the bottom bunk. He's already asleep. Um I decided to kill the light and turn on the radio, go up and down the dial a few times, and call it a night. With your headphones on? Yeah, with my, yeah, with my headphones on. That was, that was my routine. I had done this thousands of nights before this. This was just what you do in the penitentiary. And every indicator, appellate and otherwise, is 
I was going to be doing this for thousands of more nights. This was my life. And so I did this. At the time, I was in a penitentiary a little south of Houston, and I picked up a, uh, a classical station out of Houston, and there's a, what sounded to me like a, a lady playing a harp. Playing, playing, you know, I'd say, <laughs> it might have been a guy, but in my mind, I'm listening to this lady playing a harp. And I don't know about you, but you don't hear too much harp music on t uh, on the radio. It just t- 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 <laughs> or, or or in prison, <laughs> <laughs> especially in prison. And so I listened to it for a moment because that's something of a novelty. And now it's comically apropos. But after listening to that for just a moment, with no warning whatsoever, just boom like that, I found myself bathed in golden light inexplicable, wonderful, beautiful, reassuring golden light. And I, I could see nothing but this golden light. And I heard this roaring in my ears, and I felt wonderful. I, I don't know if I was, but I felt like I might have been floating on my bunk. I don't know. Just this wonderful, fantastic, beautiful sensation. And I was sure, without having to be ex- having it explained to me, it was self-evident that I was in the presence of God. And, and I felt this reassurance and this undeniable, limitless focus of love aimed right at me. And it was profound and wonderful and and reassuring and fantastic. And it changed everything about me and my perspective and my life. And then I heard my alarm going off and I reflexively just turned it off like I did every morning and I sat up in my bunk, and I thought, whoa, I, I, I'm not accustomed to supernatural experiences. I don't have a psych history. I don't, you know, all the stuff. And I'm going, I knew what that was. But like all profound things in your life, I think why is probably the most important question you can ask. And I didn't have a clue. I like, why did this happen to me? Here I am, some guy just sitting in the penitentiary. And I spent probably months chewing on this, thinking, reading, talking to some people, even a little praying about, you know, what's going on here. And the simplest thing is what you might call Occam's razor, that philosophical notion that the simplest explanation, until proven wrong, is probably the best. And it hit me that the only thing that had happened is I had asked, you know, help, God, please show me something. I got nothing here. You literally had nothing. I had not, yo, nowhere to go. And he said, okay, look. And I knew this is real because it changed me inside. This wasn't some sort of, you know, intellectual conclusion I reached after a search, so, you know, some kind of investigation. This, this is something that happened to me. And the reason I know that it's real and almost irrational but genuine is that I'm different. After this happened to me, I wanted different things, and I disliked other things. In fact, my life did a 180. The things that I had hated, now I was loving them. The things that I had loved, now I was hating them. And the, the whole the, the, the good, bad, the, the right and wrong dynamic there, the, the conundrum we all wrestle with, was suddenly plain to me. It made sense. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast, is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, Somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts, if you dare. (laughs) 
Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. And things did get better. It took a long time from there, right? But then the Innocence Project. Let's talk about the Innocence Project. You are, yeah, you're a big fan. You can <laughs> and, say that, yeah. And, <laughs> and, and, well, and, what happened was early on, you know, DNA was just in its infancy when I got convicted. And as things started evolving, you started seeing these things in the newspaper or on TV. And not only did I write a letter. But my parents did, my aunt did, my sister did. To the Innocence Project. To the Innocence Project, asking for, you know, hey, look at my case. The Innocence Project is very above board, very transparent. Yeah, they don't, there's no uh, jumping the line, so to speak, no, except no, no, for no. death penalty <laughs> cases, which, of course, those have to go to sure. the front because otherwise it's too late and there's no reversing that. Um, but, so, but your case did make it to the, top of the, to the top of the pile. My case got resolved because in essence of DNA evidence. Um, there were lots of questions. Uh, we talked about that accusation of being the murderous perv with my wife's dead hand. Well, there was a stain on the bed sheet. There are, you know, there was an autopsy. So we start slowly getting incremental successes in court about, okay, well, test that stain, test some of the, uh, the swabs from the autopsy, and we're and there's also like there's there's this bandana that was found behind our house that had human blood on it, but that's as far as they ever went because you know eighty six eighty seven there was no advanced uh, scientific way of finding out what was what. Um, so we're starting to get these tests done, and the courts being I don't want to say biased, but you know they, the the appellate courts seem to lean towards the prosecution. You have you know you have a conviction here. And you're upsetting the apple cart a bit. A perfectly good conviction. Yes, why, why yes, mess it up? yeah, yeah. Well, what, what are you trying to do here? You're trying to undermine the process, and so the, these things are being tested, but they're coming back either negative or inconclusive. For instance, like the stain on the sheet that came about with the whole murderous perv accusation. We'll come to find out that wasn't what they call a neat stain. That was what's in every marriage bed. It's what they called a mixed stain of both. Uh, male and female fluids. It's in every marriage bed. And so that kind of completely blew that whole pervert aspect of that accusation. But then also the swaps from the autopsy, those came back negative, negative, negative. And so it's looking like there's less and less to happen here. Things just aren't looking good. In fact, I even sent a letter <clears throat> to the Instance Project that, you know, I understand you've been moving heaven and earth here, but it looks like we're not getting much results here. And if you have to step away, I understand because the Instance Project has limited resources and they can't just throw good money after bad on an unwinnable case. And the last piece of evidence that they fought and fought and fought and finally got access to was this blue bandana that was found behind my house that had some uh, blood on it. And they finally got it tested. And in a almost a um, supernatural revelation, the uh, the Innocent Project always has to have an attorney of record from the state where they're, where they're you know, carrying out this uh, appeal. 
and this one was John Raley. He was a pro bono lawyer out of Houston. He was a civil attorney. He'd never done a criminal case in his life. But he and Nina Morrison with the Institute Project did a lot of the underlying work of this. And at the hearing before this blue bandana was tested, John really says something. I was, I was reading the record about it, that this bandana, he said, we should test it, Your Honor, because it might have the victim's DNA on it. It might have the assailant's DNA on it. It might have the key to, unturn, you know, to turning this whole case around. But unless you test it or allow us to test it, we'll never know. And the instance project is willing to pay for everything, the lab test, the transports, everything. Just, just let us do it, and we will either confirm your conviction and make it unassailable, or we'll free an innocent man. And in a wildly, weirdly prophetic sort of statement, that, that's what was said in court, and that's exactly what happened. Is that bandana had my wife's DNA on it. And it also had co-mingled DNA with hers on that bandana belonging to a male, not me. And that's wonderful, but that wasn't a get-out-of-jail-free card. But there was another break in the case, which is that the actual killer, uh, who, and this is a tragic, another tragic aspect aspect of this, there was a very similar murder uh, nearby in the months after your wife's murder. Yeah, I was inside the penitentiary about 17 months when another murder was committed in Austin. Um, what's bizarre is, in, in a very creepy way, the victim of this murder was a woman named Deborah Baker. And like my wife, she was a woman in her early 30s, long, dark hair, um, Young child, was home alone at the time. Uh, there was no forced entry at either home. Um, they were both beaten to death about the head and very violent deaths. The houses were ransacked a bit. Some things were taken. Some things were left behind. Um, it was very unusual. And this it all had happened on the 13th of the month. And um, it's a lot of coincidences when the DNA from that bandana was run through CODIS. I actually got news of it on my birthday uh, a few months after the DNA was first found. And there was a hit on CODIS. And this guy named Mark Norwood was on the bandana. And my attorney friend John Rayleigh's wife and a uh, an legal uh, paralegal and RN um, had gotten together and they were on the internet and they were looking up cold cases in Austin and they found this woman's case that paralleled if not mirrored my own and they brought it to the Austin Police Department and they said look we've got this case and they're almost identical We've got your perpetrator who, in, in one case, we think he's good for the other one. And here's his name. Here's his DNA profile. And here's his address. We think you might want to look at him. And they did. And they did. To, and, their, to their great credit. Oh, absolutely. They were very, they, this was a different police department than had come after me. And they were gung-ho, and they, they matched up immediately. And within weeks, they had, uh, after my release, they arrested this guy and these two murders were frighteningly similar. And that was the impetus to make the prosecutor who was handling the appellate situation for the county agree to let me out because there was another murder. You're freed uh, out into the sunshine, 24 years and seven days, 24 hours a day. And, and then things take another interesting turn, right? Which is that it's, it's a crazy thing that in this country, uh, no prosecutor has ever gone to jail until your case for a wrongful conviction resulting in incarceration. But Ken Anderson was now a judge, right? He had been promoted. And that's, that's a crazy thing too, right? He won uh, district attorney of the year mm-hmm. uh, after he uh, wrongly convicted you. 
and uh, wrongfully convicted you, and it was ultimately became ultimately he became a judge, and so <clears throat> the prosecutorial misconduct was uncovered, right? The fact that he had in fact had had access and was aware of these pieces of evidence. After I got out, they had a court of inquiry in Texas to determine whether or not anything had happened. Didn't rely on his memory. Didn't rely on what other people said. There was a record of these things being requested. I mean, when the judge asked a prosecutor straight up, do you have anything else? And they say no. That's against the law. That violates Brady. And what happened to Ken Anderson was, here's this sitting judge. And the state bar and the state of Texas, they're coming after him. And at the end of it all, there were there were some issues with, you know, statute of limitations, some other things. But the bottom line was there was a plea at the end of it all. Um, he was removed from the bench, which was a great thing because he could no longer do to me what he did to other folks. He also had his law license taken away. Um, he had, I think it was a $500 fine, 500 hours of community service. And for what all, all the lawyers are telling me, that for the first time that anybody knows of in America, he was a judge was act well, a prosecutor was sent to jail for misconduct in a murder trial. And if you know anybody in the criminal justice world, talk to the lawyers, this sent ripples all across the country. Um, this hadn't happened before. And I was amazed at the, um, the way that the other lawyers were incensed, not just the defense bar, but other prosecutors hated this too because it's like um, – when, when, when there's a bad cop revealed, the other cops dislike it because it makes them look bad. It makes their job more difficult because when people don't trust the criminal justice system, they'll just opt out. And so this was a huge deal. This, this, this judge, this sitting judge, was held accountable for something he had done you know, 25 years ago and took a huge chunk of my life. And the family of the other victim, Deborah Baker, they were – Heartbroken and incensed at the same time because had this judge who, who used to be a prosecutor, had he done his job properly, had he not gone after me by suppressing evidence, their mother, wife, sister, that family member, Deborah Baker, might be alive today. She likely would be, and it's, a, it's really a terrible – another terrible outcome of this whole situation, this whole crooked situation. There's one more uh, wonderful aspect of this, right, uh, which is that – You've gone and, well, aside from being on 60 Minutes and, and having a movie made about you and getting remarried and uh, reestablishing uh, your relationship with your son and a book, the book is called? Getting Life. Getting Life. But on top of that, I think the thing that uh, is, is really going to be a big part of your legacy is the Michael Morton Act. Um, and let's talk about that. This is a, a model law that can and should be used as a template across the country in each state because each state is controlled of their own criminal justice system. The bulk of or the, the, the essence of it is that if you are charged with a crime, God forbid, that the state should and is required to turn over to the citizen the evidence they have against you at trial. They, they just can't make it up. They have to actually have hard evidence and they have to share it with you, just like it happens in a civil trial, that the criminal justice side of it should be like the civil justice side of it. And so sharing of files isn't undermining the prosecutorial uh, side. Uh, I've, I've talked to a lot of prosecutors and prosecutor groups since I've been out. This actually protects them from certain appellate review. It makes their cases stronger if they can prove as a, as a byproduct of the process that they've been transparent and they've shared everything, that they've been above board and it's been a legitimate prosecution, that they just share their files. The police reports, the lab reports, you know, if, if it shows that the time of death was something that would clear the defendant, that should be known. Or if that time of death really nails the guy, that should be shown too because we're having public trials. And I did not name it, but the Michael Morton Act in Texas does that. It codifies Brady and it forces them to, to do what's right. 
I like using the uh, analogy of you're playing cards and you're playing for money. The prosecutor gets to deal the cards. Well, it used to be that he would also, or she, would not just deal you the cards, but look at the cards beforehand and decide whether or not you should get them. And that's not a level playing field. They shouldn't be able to do that. Number one, it's not fair, but it also puts an unfair burden on the prosecutors, that temptation to tilt the field towards them. Don't forget to give us a fantastic review wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps. And I'm a proud donor to the Innocence Project, and I really hope you'll join me in supporting this very important cause and helping to prevent future wrongful convictions. Go to innocenceproject.org to learn how to donate and get involved. I'd like to thank our production team, Connor Hall and Kevin Wardis. The music in the show is by three-time Oscar-nominated composer, Jay Ralph. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at Wrongful Conviction and on Facebook at Wrongful Conviction Podcast. Wrongful Conviction with Jason Flom is a production of Lava for Good Podcast in association with Signal Company Number One. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.